Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Josip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, welcome back to yet another episode of Control Alt Azure. I am Tobias Zimmergren, and I am again here with Yussi Boyne. What's up? Hi, Tobias. Today, after we're done with recording this episode, I will focus my energy and efforts on preparing for an upcoming exam. So usually the exams that I do are Azure certifications, and I, I need to go to my balcony with my laptop to actually do those because otherwise the, the the proctor who's overseeing those exams will will yell at me that I have too many displays and too much stuff on the table and it's it's not allowed but this exam that I'm planning on doing and that will happen two months from now uh, I first need to do a pretest and then I have the actual exam and that's a certified board member certification I think it's local to Finland and and Already, I, I feel it's it's fun because it's not technical, and it's mostly about corporate law, taxation, the the, the board member dynamics, the other aspects uh, such as designing and planning for st- strategy of a company and, and whatnot. And today, I got the uh, the pretest. I didn't really have time to time to go through that yet, but I can already see that I will be spending a lot of time reading and studying a bit more. And perhaps two months from now, when we're recording episode, whatever number it's going to be, I will say, yes, I passed. Or if you don't hear me mentioning this exam ever again, <laughs> it means I failed and I'm not planning bring to bring it up it. in two months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's probably, I, I think, what's top of mind for me. Uh, how about for you? That sounds uh, interesting. I actually, I think this is now 10 years ago. I was looking at a similar type of training and certification in Sweden, which then, of course, was uh, tailored to the the Swedish uh, business industry. And looking back, I didn't really have a use for it at the time, but it would be interesting to to learn those things. And like you say, it's outside of the the business scope that I currently work in right now, which is very technical, some more on the... uh, management side of things like I know we talked in some episode about the executive MBA you did one in Helsinki some some time back which was cool also something that I reviewed some time ago to get you know a, a training and angle education on a different side than you know the daily uh, stuff that we we do the daily grind in the cloud you know there's a lot of strategy there's a lot of leadership there's a lot of management uh, but it's still within this one area so getting the insights during a training leading to one of those certifications in this case uh, I think is the most interesting part so it's great when you get the certification you can hang it on the wall but the journey of collaborating with people that are not from your industry but from different parts um, you know of the global industries and, and entirely different areas that's what kind of intrigues me to to learn how others are doing and you know see what things you can pick up so that sounds exciting. I will remind you in a, in a few episodes uh, to see how that went. Um, as for me, I am planning on harvesting the grapes I have in, now in my garden. And I'm now scouring the web for appliances that I need to make wine. 
Uh, I know we talked actually a couple of times now in this show about the dandelion wine that I made some years ago, which again, and I repeat, do not try to make dandelion wine. Uh, well, if you care about your health anyway, it's not nice. Uh, perhaps someone can make it really nice. I could not. But now I'm looking to uh, take my actual grapes in the garden, which is, uh, you know, red or blue or whatever color you call them, uh, grapes. And they are ready for, they're ripe and ready for harvest. So I am now trying to find all the information I can on, you know, how do you pick the perfect grape? Do you take the, the entire batch of grapes or do you only take, you know, handpick single grapes or what grapes do you need for the wine? And should it be just before they're ripe or should they be a little bit overripe? I don't know. I don't know anything about that. So I'm now doing research on which of the grapes I can harvest because I have a lot of them, apparently. So we moved to this new house and, and the previous owner planted some um, some wine, wine trees and, and vineyards, whatever, and they didn't really take care of it. And now when I cut them and I, I tried to put them up, I noticed that there's a ton of grapes under them. So, uh, so that's cool. So now I will make the Maison de Zimmer 2021, which will be uh, this year's probably one or two bottles of uh, red or white, potentially rosé wine. I know that depends on rosé or red, depends on how many days I, I put it for the initial yeast period. Uh, so much I know but I don't know what kind of wine these grapes will produce. I don't actually know what kind of grapes they are. So it might also end up being like the dandelion wine. Um, so we don't know, but this is my side project, which is very analog, you know, doing some gardening, doing some research, getting some appliances for um, actually producing and yeasting the wine. Uh, and then of course, getting some nice bottles, maybe use some of the bottles I've uh, emptied and put a custom label on it. And then we'll see what happens. Store it for a year or two and then maybe auction it off on the interwebs. This sounds super exciting. Eventually, when you have your few bottles of wine ready, we really need to meet up. Perhaps we can actually fly again by that time. Then we can do a proper wine tasting and we can save the best for last meeting your wine last. And, and then we can rate it and, and perhaps share the tasting notes during the episode. When the taste buds are already <laughs> destroyed by all the other stuff we ate. And drank. But I, exactly. I'm, I can promise you this. If we do that, I will let you taste it first because this way I will know if it's any good. So I don't have to taste it if it's not good. Sounds like a good deal. So today, this is episode 96, moving towards a cloud-only architecture. And the idea for this episode, for this topic came from a few projects uh, I've worked with uh, with a few few customers in, in the past months. And, and perhaps a little bit of background first. So companies of all sizes usually still have a massive on-premises footprint. And for some companies, it might be lightweight already. Other companies have decided that they will keep a massive on-premises footprint. So... This would include Active Directory, usually file shares, a bunch of internal apps. Sometimes these are called legacy apps or line of business apps. They have different solutions for managing the servers and workstations. And then, of course, a bunch of firewalls doing all sorts of things, but mostly just blocking everything inbound and allowing HTTPS outbound, and that's it. Uh, and, and the idea isn't really that that 
the the only solution is to move everything to the cloud close up the on-premises and call it a day but perhaps before we get into this in in more detail uh toby i, I recall that you guys in your your company you don't have a massive on-prem footprint right uh no that's right and i i think we actually talked maybe even in the previous episode about that we don't have anything on-prem we run everything in the cloud so we rely on uh, you know the most of the public uh, cloud providers in this case most of the things we have is running in Microsoft Azure you know the the things that we have on prem if you will is not data centers or servers it's only clients and not on prem as is in the office it's just you know bring your own device uh, type of setup uh, where the device is incorporated into Intune so for us we are a you know mobile first cloud first type of company and we really embrace that uh, to try and, and avoid any custom servers that we run. We used to have custom built servers and other things, uh, you know, some years ago. But now it, it doesn't make sense. It's so much easier to manage in the cloud, and you have all the redundancies available in the cloud. So you can set up all your failovers, which was one of the biggest arguments for why you might not want to go to the cloud in the beginning. Was well, what happens if the cloud is down? And that's why you have failovers. And today, this is so advanced that there's nothing we could do on-prem that would be better than what we get in the cloud. And we also can cost optimize a lot in the cloud. So we run everything there. But a lot of customers, I know, they're still on-prem for good reasons, but we're a very small company, right? And most of the enterprises that we work with and the enterprise customers, they have a different story, of course. I, I sometimes say, especially with enterprises, I, I sometimes say this sort of, split reality in the sense that they might be embracing a lot of cloud-based workloads like email and chatting and instant messaging solutions. And most of the work, especially in the past 18 months, happens through those applications. But then there's the other reality, the other side of the split, which is the on-prem. And many times the employees see or realize that, well, I've got this corporate assigned laptop and it's, it's joined to the local AD, but I don't really need anything from the AD except occasionally perhaps accessing a file share. I'm working from home or from a cafe or from my summer cabin. And if I need to access something which is on-prem, I will, I will just quickly open a VPN for two minutes, fetch that one file or one thing, then close the VPN and continue being productive. That's sort of the thinking quite often. Uh, so when we got Office 365, and this was about 10, 11 years ago. We eventually got Azure AD as well, where you can put your identities in. I began seeing companies embracing Exchange Online through Office 365. And that was often the first workload you would move in, in, a, in a sort of cutover migration, meaning that you do not leave an on-premises Exchange cluster set up behind. And then all of your emails and your mailboxes and, and distribution lists and whatnot would already be in the cloud. And now with Teams, I, uh, that, that, that we've had for a couple of years now, Teams and, and SharePoint Online and, and groups and whatnot, that sort of gave the other part on what you typically use as a information worker or a knowledge worker on a daily basis. So, so that brings us to, to today that we are at a situation that many companies face. 
they still have the on-premises AD and the identities are there. That's sort of the master directory with the main identities. Then they have Azure AD, which has federated identities or simply replicated identities from the on-prem AD to Azure AD so that we, we have hybrid identity in use. But everything else is still on-prem. But users are happy with Teams and email and SharePoint and using whatever third-party SaaS solutions they, they need to. But everything else is on-prem. And, and this often brings the question on what, what happens next? Do we just accept that we have this on-prem data island, everything else in the cloud, and, and we sort of just try to cope with this? Or should we clean up the on-prem? Or should we really embrace the hybrid and, and have those two realities work together at the same time? And and I, I realize there there's different approaches for different companies and different regions on this. And since you don't have an on-prem infrastructure in your company, is it so, or, or do you have something you would feel you would benefit from having an on-prem footprint now? Today, no. We uh, we live and we're, I mean, so to phrase that correctly, I think now we're a remote only company, right? So we don't actually have an office. So even if when we had an office, we kind of minimized and started to discard the servers that we had in the office because it didn't make sense to have server a server room anymore because everything went into the cloud. And now even more so when most people work from home, there is no on-prem location that we need to deploy anything to. So for, for us, uh, we do collaboration in Teams. We have email in Exchange Online. I mean, we use the entire Microsoft 365 suite. And so we have OneDrive, SharePoint, Teams, Exchange, all these things. And we use Azure AD for the uh, directory and users um, in Azure. And that's it. Then everything is tied around these uh, core components, if you will. So anything that we do um, is done using that account or work account, which is in Azure AD and uh, you know the same account for Microsoft 365. And uh, your device is, uh, like I mentioned before, rolled into Microsoft Intune. So it's a managed device where you have the encryption enabled like BitLocker or I don't know what it's called on, on a Mac, like 5Volt or you know, whatever it's called. Um, you know, all these things are are taken care of for us, even though we're working remotely. And that for us has been, you know, the main thing. Everything else that we used to have on-prem for servers, we don't need that. And we're about 30 people collaborating and we are spread out everywhere across the globe. And it, it doesn't make sense. The, the one thing that I could see, um, we did make use of, uh, perhaps not in near time, but a while back is like printers. And I know we talked about that in one episode. I don't recall the number, like universal printing. You had some ideas around that at some point. We talked about that, but that has since also gone away. And, you know, it's essentially HR and accounting doing most of the printing these days. Um, but again, that doesn't require a server. So the it, it might be an on-prem device, like a, a real business printer but you don't need anything else than an access point and a Wi-Fi for that to work. So for us, I do not see ever again a need for an on-prem environment as such. 
The, the printing angle is interesting. And we talked about universal printing, as you mentioned. That was in episode 69. And I, I, I recall it was still in preview at the time. Now it's generally available already. With printing, you need to go to the office. And then you perhaps initiate a print job from home. Then you commute to the office and the printing is ready. I've got my own printer at home, but I don't really need to print that often. Mostly it's it's coloring pictures for the kids nowadays. But one angle with printing that I hadn't really thought about before is secure printing. And somebody mentioned this to me at some point that, hey, you see, this is all great, universal printing and whatnot, but we need secure printing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it goes over HTTPS, it's secure. No, you're, you're, you're not hearing us. The idea is that I can initiate the print job now, but the actual physical paper is not coming out from the printer before I physically go next to the printer and use my RFID tag or something next to the printer to, to tell the printer that I'm physically present next to the device. It's safe to print this sensitive piece of paper now. And that's often a, a sort of proprietary solution from the printer maker. And, and that needs to be taken into account as well. I did pull a couple of the printer brands, their importers here in the Nordics to, to ask that, okay, we're planning on universal printing. Are you supporting this? And all of them said, yes, we support it with the existing firmware, but in the future with the next gen printers, it will be built in. So you don't need the connector at all. You, you, you can just hook up the printer at the office, have Wi-Fi, and it's all done. But that's probably still months away, and it's reliant on the company actually refreshing the physical printing devices as well. I, I think this makes sense, and I understand this requirement. Um, and I recall vividly in 1998, I worked um, in IT and help desk uh, over the summers for a company where I used to live. And uh, I supported the organization by ensuring networks were up and running and, you know, things, things were smooth. And, you know, I was pretty young at the time. But one thing that, that I recall from that period is they had these key cards that they used to access the building. That key card, they had to put that physically on the printer to be able to unlock uh, the papers uh, waiting in queue for them. And this is 1998 or 99, maybe. I don't recall exactly. And they would go there to the printer, so they would send whatever it is to the printer, and they, they would have to walk over there and swipe the card. I think you actually inserted the card into something, uh, size of a credit card, maybe even slightly bigger, and then your papers came out, uh, and or you had like a pin code. And, you know, that was really cutting edge at the time. So I understand the requirements uh, for this to exist, and I'm happy to hear that this is now in the next, next few models will be integrated into the printers. Because what I was getting to here, what I recall is we had a lot of servers to maintain this. And one of the things we always had to fix was the printer. We had to go restart something on a machine somewhere uh, in a server hall or, you know, worst case under, you know, one of the IT admins' desk. He had a, a specific server that was not in the server room because some custom apps were running there, some VBA scripts and old Excel macros from Excel version two or three or whatever, um, you know, which supported the entire lifespan of, of a big 
portions of the uh, local network, which, by the way, was not just network cables. It was also these old, these two cables, what did you call them, the, the serial and parallel ports, whatever you called them back then, which is also what a lot of the printers were operating over. I don't want to think about that time because when you think back and the amount of work you had to put in to get things working, and now you just push a button, everything works. I, I wanted to say I, I understand these requirements, and I don't think the secure printing will go away, but I'm happy that that also becomes more uh, integrated so you can avoid having servers. You can avoid having everything. You just put the printer on your office and you're done. Exactly. And I vividly recall also those times. And now I'm just happy that all the printers that I have to deal with are physically connected to the local network or they have Wi-Fi and they just work. You don't really need to mess around with them. So so what next then? Uh, we have Azure AD in place now. We, have, we still have the on-prem AD. Typically file shares are the thing that companies start focusing on because that's been the place for decades now where you can just drop whatever files you have. If somebody leaves the company, they are often asked that, hey, can you copy all of your whatever work files you're working on to the K drive or the T drive or whatever is the first character of the company's name, that's typically the name of the shared drive everybody has access to. And, and eventually you have hundreds of gigabytes or terabytes of data in a file share that nobody really knows what's relevant, what's still being accessed, what's archived, what, what's something that we could easily delete. And that's one of the things that is fairly hard to access if you're not within the local network or if you're not dialing in with a VPN. So, so you need to think about migrating that to somewhere. And the obvious choice is Azure Storage, perhaps using Azure File Sync, or migrating to Microsoft Teams, or migrating to OneDrive for Business for specific files or, or team folders, or migrating to SharePoint document libraries. And what I often now see is migrating to Teams seems to be the most obvious one, because if you already have the folder structure on those shared drives per team or per department, you can lift and shift those to the cloud, perhaps using the shared migration tools or creating a custom script that, that pushes the file to the cloud. Any any thoughts on this? And I do realize you're you're not frequently accessing your your R drive or your K drive, but is this something you're thinking of? especially related to perhaps team security that we spoke about in episode 73. So, I mean, I'm migrating all your stuff to the cloud is, it will vary depending on the company. And I've been in discussions with multiple customers and multiple companies about their setup and every setup is different. Uh, so this is a, a very tricky thing and it's not a question with an answer. It's more a dialogue. You know, what are the requirements for this? specific use case and how can we, uh, you know, where can we meet those requirements? Can we go fully into the cloud? Do we need to go hybrid? What do we need to do? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, file shares, I have the, you know, the, the same notion that a lot of the companies I talk to, they don't just take all the files and drop them in a blob storage or, you know, virtual hard drives. They kind of split it up. If it's files that you collaborate on, you 
drop them either in OneDrive or SharePoint, and then you take it from there. Uh, I've not, at least up until now, I haven't had many dialogues where customers say, I want my files in Microsoft Teams, because essentially when you have a, a team, you also have a Microsoft 365 group backing that up uh, where you can store the files. So, um, you know, I, I think this is the future of how data is uh, distributed in an organization. You know, you have emails is for structured communication in a way. Uh, Microsoft Teams is for, you know, the unstructured type of communications. You have OneDrive and SharePoint where the documents and files are stored. Um, and then everything is tied together. You can search it. You can find it easily most of the time. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, a solid answer to how you would deal with these things. Uh, I think that, you know, the answer is always just a new question. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think for some organizations, you still have file shares or, you know, large chunks of data or, you know, even millions of files. But to this date, I see a lot of customers and companies running SharePoint and OneDrive, and they have millions of files in there without problems often realizing that, that we had these five terabytes of data, but we actually only use this portion of those files regularly or even semi-regularly. So let's put them in an accessible place and the others are in, you know, maybe a different types of storage that you can connect to, but you don't inherently have access to them just like that. So maybe archives and, you know, old backups and I don't know what, what that might be, but yeah, I, I think the discussion will be extremely long if if we tried to just ask a question and put an answer to it, I think this is always the consultant answer. It depends. And then from there, you take the dialogue. Fully agree on that one. And uh, we had one scenario with, with one company and they had a fairly massive local file share within the internal network and everything needed to go to the cloud. And, and I spent a lot of time figuring out how to utilize Azure Storage and Azure Filesync for their specific requirements. But eventually we sat down with the customer and, and, and had a look, okay, so this is the bunch of data we have in the local file shares. What if we just put all of this to read only, copy everything to one team and grant everybody access in there and say, there's your files, keep using this. If you want to move it, feel free. And, and that's what we did. And this probably wouldn't work if you have 50,000 employees, it would be a chaos. But this was a smaller company. And we all figured that we were saving a lot of time on just copying everything, getting rid of the old file shares, and that's that. And I did not get an angry phone call from any of the employees just yet. So, so perhaps that's- Because their, their phone book was stored in, in that drive and they can't <laughs> access it anymore. So they no, don't have your number. <laughs> exactly. So, so beyond file shares, then we have internal apps and, and there's so many different internal apps. There's commercial ones, there's custom maids, there's stuff running on random virtual machines. There's internal external apps, apps hosted elsewhere, but they are internal to your company and custom made for you. And perhaps the access is through detecting what's your public IP address without authentication. And figuring out what to do with all of this, if you want to lower the footprint in on-premises. One of the challenges is that nobody wants to pay for the cost of rewriting an internal tool to be cloud compatible. 
And and I think we discussed this on the previous Azure update episode that Azure Migrate service now has of new capability for scanning an existing ASP.NET application from a VM hosted on IIS and packaging that, I recall, was it for a Docker container running on Kubernetes? Yeah, you can run that in AKS. You can also run it on app services with containers. So, you know, the tool can now, theoretically, I haven't used it yet. It can theoretically discover your uh, apps running in, for example, IIS and then package it with all the required variables uh, into a container image that you then can deploy to AKS or app services running on containers. Right, right. And then, of course, the alternative, as opposed to porting a custom app to the cloud, is to perhaps utilize Power Platform or or create a custom SharePoint framework-based solution, perhaps hosting that within Teams. Uh, but then there's also often the discussion in, what if we just leave the legacy apps for now and have the users somehow access those externally? perhaps using Azure AD application proxy. We talked about that in episode 77 or having the VPN back to the corporate network. And, and I feel the VPN approach is the easiest one here. So politically, it's challenging to have those discussions that, yeah, we have these cloud-based laptops and workstations accessing our internal highly secure applications but if the alternative is that the users would have to travel to the office first, nobody wants to do that. So nobody can access those applications. So often I feel that, especially with internal apps, it's less about bending technology to your needs, and it's more about the politics involved and security angles on how this app should be used. Yeah, makes sense. I, I can relate to that. And, and I recall also, you know, over the last decade, really moving to the cloud has been, you know, part of the job in, in various, uh, in various sizes. And, you know, and you brushed on exchange online a long time ago in this episode already, you know, and maybe it was now 20 minutes ago in this episode, you talked about one of the first things you moved to might be exchange online. And I recall, was it, 2006 or seven, maybe, or at the latest, 2008, BPOS came around, Business Productivity Online Suite, uh, which was essentially Exchange Online, and then later SharePoint Online and, and different things, which is today now known as Microsoft 365, or previously only Office 365 was part of that. And I, I've, over the course of these years, you know, now 15 years, I've seen so many times you're moving you know, to the cloud or the new cloud, because there's always a, a new type of cloud or a new cloud model. But the story is always the same. Exactly what you mentioned here is nobody wants to uh, rewrite that one tool that's been running for 10 years. But when you come to that point, you need to make the decision, is it going to be worth investing in building this in a modern way and keep supporting it, keep developing and testing and, you know, whatever? Or can we actually come to the conclusion that it's not worth, you know, there's no business justification to keep using that one thing. Uh, and this is something that I've seen mature a lot in organizations, uh, perhaps also because of a requirement. They are required to make that call now. If you, if you go into the cloud, you cannot run that thing, uh, which is, you know, built for your on-prem environment or an old Excel VBA script executing, you know, arbitrary code on your system. 
which was also a thing that popped up a lot in the 90s and then lived on well into the 2000s. Um, you know, I, I remember one company, there was one person who had an Excel file on, on his machine. And whenever someone in the company needed something uh, as part of an inventory rescan, this was a warehouse with thousands of employees or and not the warehouse itself. It's like the industrial facility um, where they have the, the storage for that warehouse uh, with thousands of employees. And there was one person in that company who had to go in to an Excel file and click one of the buttons that someone probably five or six years prior to him wrote. Nobody knew what that button did. It was impossible to figure it out. But when you clicked it, all the inventories were updated in the entire company worldwide. One person, one Excel file. So the amount of power granted to that one Excel file and that one individual was a lot. And so I've seen the reluctance of rebuilding these things, not because it, it could take some time, but also because nobody actually knows anything about it. So I'm, I'm happy now that we've come to the crossroads where it's no longer a discussion of do we want to do it or not? No, you, you want to move this direction, you have to do it. Uh, and you just have to kind of cut the ties of the old and you know, embrace the new uh, where you don't have the hybrid capabilities. So, but I mean, I've, I've got a lot of stories from the olden days in, in how these things went down. But this was something that I thought at least was relevant in, in terms of um, legacy application, because it doesn't have to be something you built in .NET or a web app. You know, a lot of the applications, which today, in, you know, today, if you're listening in in the future, it's 2021. And I still see a lot of Excel files with a lot of stuff going on. You have to click a button and it's doing not just calculating cells, it's executing scripts and whatever. But these days, the protection in the office package is so good that it tells you this file is trying to execute some type of script and we just told it not to. And then it doesn't work, which is a good thing. Uh, so I, I think the industry as a whole is maturing. Uh, but I mean, there's going to keep being stories like this. And, and this episode is about, um, you know, embracing the uh, or moving towards the cloud-only architecture. But there's always going to be these discussions. There's always going to be these legacy things. If it's legacy file shares, like you mentioned, or legacy apps, uh, or Excel sheets that nobody know what they actually do when you push a button. The button was also red, I might add, which did not help. <laughs> and it, it the name, I think the label was button one or button or it, it was just one button on the Excel sheet and you pressed it and the inventory update. It was ridiculous. Uh, but I, I don't think you will get away from those kind of challenges. They will just look different moving into the future. What a fine example on, on how to utilize Excel. Uh, a quick uh, example from from a past past experience. I got a call, this was a couple of years ago, somebody called me and said, Hey, you see, we are moving everything to the cloud. But we have uh, fiber connectivity to the office, it was one gig, unlimited, as is usual in Finland. And everything is so slow. So Office 365 is too slow for us. So is there a way to escape the cloud and come back to on premises? So I, I, I paid a visit to the customer and we had a cup of coffee and I said, so what specifically is slow? Is it email or chat or SharePoint or what? No, no, it's it's with the office clients. So they were using the Office 365 
apps, meaning the Office Suite, and, and, and they showed me, here's our Excel file. It had maybe 200 rows, and we click Save, and it takes 15 minutes. And I said, no, that's impossible. So they clicked Save, it took 15 minutes to commit. And I was like, so so is there something wrong with the tenant? Is there some reverse proxy shady things happening in here? But then I saw that the Excel file they were manipulating, it was not a .xlsx, it was a .xlsb, which is a binary file. And we opened the file locally, it was 2.5 gigs. And since it's a binary file, still an Excel file, but stored in binary, it cannot commit only the delta changes. It needs to commit the whole file. And each time you click save, it commits 2.5 gigs, and then it needs to download that back to get the refresh. So five gigs over the line, it takes 10, 15 minutes easily in the local network. So our fix, my super consultant trick, close the file, open it again, save as XLSX, and it was down to 200 kilobytes, still the same functionality. And again, somebody years ago had decided this is the best format, let's not change anything and it just works. Uh, but the last bit beyond file shares and internal apps is Active Directory. And, and often, especially with enterprises, I see with AD that the companies have numerous different integrations and solutions and identities and and ad hoc scripts and 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 dynamic group population solutions custom made years ago that sort of keep ad running and the obvious question is should we refocus these same changes to azure ad so if we synchronize to azure ad what's sort of the cutting point where do we stop Azure AD Connect, don't sync anymore, let's retire the local AD. Is that possible? And is there something that still needs the local AD? Because if we shut it down or demote the domain controllers and eventually retire the whole local AD, is that even possible? Or should we spin up a couple of domain controllers in the cloud built at the VPN between the two networks, the cloud and the on-prem, and, and, and sort of move some of that technical weight off from the local office to the cloud. And, and nobody often has these answers for this. And, and often it's more about investigating the situation rather than deciding that this is the technical approach or this is how we're going to do it over the weekend. And that, I feel, is perhaps the most significant challenge here. The apps, the file shares, there's politics, there's security, there's technical decisions. But with AD, it often involves so many different people that you need to get them to sit down together, commit to the new goal. And then you say, okay, let's spend six months on this to actually get it done. Yep. When, was the, um, when was the last time you installed a local AD? Um, I think a local AD... Um... Last time I installed Active Directory was probably when I managed my SharePoint farms in demo environments. Because, you know, coming from the solution architecture and development side of the business, I am not coming from maintaining IT or installing domain controllers in production. So I'm very happy with that. I, I've only done that 
uh, for demo purposes, um, which has been great. Uh, I've supported others who did this in production, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm, I never managed Active Directory uh, deployments uh, because that was never my thing uh, coming from the dev side. Uh, today, I do a lot of things in Azure AD, so I, I manage a lot of that, but I don't have to actually deploy Azure AD because it's right there and I just have to configure it the correct way to make it behave. So, um, so on-prem AD, I don't have a lot of experience in, you know, rolling that out. I, I feel often that even if working with a customer in a project that mostly focuses on Azure and Microsoft 365, there's always that point during a workshop that somebody says, we actually need to look at the local AD because there's this and this setting and it might affect our future plans. And then suddenly you are remote desktoping to a DC which is a Windows Server 2008 or 2003, and figuring out the old commands. Oh, what was the tool again? I need to open this and that. So I feel it's been useful, but at the same time, I feel everybody sort of agree that the plain old local AD still very much used, but perhaps we'd like to get rid of that eventually. So now back at the office then, what do the users need? We talked about secure printing. And all I could think of is Wi-Fi and some way to get dynamic IP addresses and a DNS. That's that's mostly it. I think we use what I see a lot of people use these days, like uh, Ubiquiti or Unify, and and they come with the you know the built-in firewalls and all these things as well. So you get firewalls and all of that stuff, and you get a super easy to manage Wi-Fi, uh, you know, running securely. So we, we deploy that, which is super simple, and the rest is cloud. So it's just a few devices to support the Wi-Fi signals really coming into the building, secure it, and that's it. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing the same, especially for branch offices. It's, it's cheap, it's fast, and, and often you hire a specialized company to set it all up and perhaps maintain and, and, and manage that. But still, a regular user with a laptop needs the external display, the docking station, the Wi-Fi, DNS. Antivirus typically comes from the cloud and a coffee machine. That's it, really. Alrighty, so so this was a quick run, do, uh, run through on how do you move th towards a cloud-only architecture. And I, I feel there's a lot of different angles here still. Perhaps we'll revisit this in a, in a future episode. But now we still have the unexpected question. And Toby, it's your turn to ask me. Yeah, so, you know, I've been contemplating about one thing here now for a while. And I thought, you know, instead of me trying to figure this out, um, I'd ask you the question. And the question is, how do you think the world would be different if bananas were illegal? What a great question. I haven't thought about this before. Really? <laughs> now, now I'm already getting multiple ideas. Okay, so perhaps this and that. Well, for one thing, we would have smugglers smuggling bananas <laughs> to the Nordics. Uh, instead of using the, the containers on, on, on those massive ships now that they do, because we don't grow banana locally, 
uh, we would have smugglers and the black market banana prices like two kilos of banana is five euro today, but tomorrow it's going to be 10 euro. So, so buy today. That's one. The, the other aspect though, is that I, I love bananas and, and I, I, I often have a banana or two before my gym sessions because I get the energy quickly in. So I would have to replace that with something else because you couldn't be seen in public eating a banana anymore. And I recall reading that for banana, there's only one type of banana left in the world. That's the Cavendish one. So perhaps somebody would then figure out a way to tinker the, the, the banana solution to be of a different brand. So it wouldn't be called a banana. It would look a little bit different, but that would perhaps be legal and it would replace that. Interesting. Interesting. I'm not going to give you my answer to this question. Because uh, <laughs> I, I didn't really find one. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tough question because there's so many different angles you can approach this from the personal one, the, the commercial one, the legal one. But still, a lot I mean, of the things... I feel that a lot of the things we took for granted before COVID-19 are something that now you're sort of seeing, well, that was a nice luxury we had, like hot lunch at the at the office cafe, ready-made for you. You don't have to do anything. You just pay for it. So things like this, and especially if bananas were illegal, I, I think it would take a couple of months for people to go, okay, well, bananas were really, really good. So I need to find something to replace that. And it would be a different fruit, perhaps. Yeah, maybe broccoli. I know you like that. Yeah, yeah, that could be. It. I'm still working on, on broccoli. Tomato is fine now. I'm sort of thinking, I think you mentioned that previously. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of focusing on avocado next. The best thing in the world. So let's hope they don't become illegal. Oh, yeah, I hope so, too. Alrighty, thank you for joining again this week. This was episode 96, moving towards a cloud-only architecture. And we hope to have you next week with us as well. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm.